0: Thanks for listening to The Church at 112, where we gather together to encourage and equip each other into a growing relationship with Jesus. Now, here's today's message. Uh, but, in case you didn't know, I am a nerd. I don't know if you knew that. I am a nerd. I, one of my degrees is in English, so just a heads up today, if you don't like English, um, I got nothing for you. But um, I've always steered clear of poems. I, I didn't like hearing... It was always a bother of mine when I would go to a church and like, I would hear someone like recite a poem or sing a poem or whatever you do with poems. And then they would usually do like three alliterated points and that, that's kind of what most of the sermons that I grew up on. And I just didn't like it. But as a result of having an English degree... I have a good knowledge of poetry, and it reminds me of a lady. So today's talk reminds me of a lady named Elizabeth Barrett Browning. Have you ever heard of her, Elizabeth Barrett Browning? She's not from around here, and she's not from our time. In the 1800s, she lived. uh, she, She was fantastic at poetry, but her dad kept her under her thumb. It kind of reminds me a little bit of Britney Spears and that whole estate issue that she had. But anyway, and so she had a controlling dad. And so she published a book of poems. And there was a guy named Robert Browning who saw her stuff. And he thought, man, she, this, this is incredible. You're incredible. And he wanted to get with her and meet with her. And and they, they, they had a couple meetings. And then eventually they, he fell in love with her. And they eloped so that dad wouldn't find out. And, of course, she was in her 30s. And they didn't want dad to find out, and then she had a kid. She lived a little bit longer, another maybe 16 years, and then her life was over. But some of the poems that she wrote really broke the mold of that era. In fact, our modern poetry, the emotiveness of our modern poetry, we can trace back to some of the stuff that she did. Because as a woman... I hate to say it, in the 1800s, they had, had a different look at ladies back in the 1800s. They had a different role for women back in the 1800s. And she kind of broke that mold. And so here it is, not only is it a woman, and she's not talking about baking things, and she's not talking about, like, it's not easy, roses or red violets or blue type poetry, but she's use, utilizing the best that she can do. And she's speaking her emotions, and so she's breaking the mold on that what was really fascinating is that her and robert shared so many letters hundreds of letters back and forth during their during their time together and some of those have been published one of those is called sonnet number 43 and i want to read that for you just this morning for her for her if you ever read elizabeth barrett browning bless you you'll find that Those are like adult-sized sneezes. I love it. What I love about Elizabeth Bear Browning is she was infatuated. You can read her poems, and she was infatuated with her husband. She was totally enamored and in love with her husband. Here's her sonnet 43. She says, How do I love thee? Have you heard this one? How do I love thee? Let me count the ways. Have you heard this one? I love thee to the depth and breadth and height My soul can reach when feeling out of sight for the ends of being and ideal grace. I love thee to the level of every day's most quiet need by sun and candlelight. I love thee freely as men strive for right. I love thee purely as they turn from praise. I love thee with the passion put to use in my old griefs and with my childhood's faith. I love thee with a love I seem to lose with my lost saints. I love thee with... The breath, smiles, tears, and of all my life. And if God choose, I shall but love thee better after death. Those are all the different ways that she loved her husband. And it was just fascinating to see. By the way, I I have an English degree, but I, I, I didn't like having to read all the stuff that I had to read. This is one of the things that I loved having to read. Kind of reminds me, June 25th, 2001. I looked up June 25th, 2001. That was last year, right? What was the significance of that date? There was nothing really significant in, in world history. There was a couple things in, in, in US history that I think are gonna be, one of them I think will be remembered for a while, but most of them are gonna be forgotten for most of the time. That was the first day that I ever heard that song A Thousand Names. Phil Wickham's new album last year dropped on the 21st. And you know me, if, if you follow me on social media, I'm, I stay up till 11 o'clock on Thursday nights because new music releases at 11 o'clock Central Time on Thursday nights. New music Friday. Uh, they base everything on, on Eastern Time for whatever reason. They're not special. So I'm listening at 11 o'clock, and I remember his album dropped. And man, I must have wore, wore that out on my phone, just listening over and over and over again. And his main track on that whole album is not Thousand Names, it's like Battle Belongs. You've probably heard that on Christian radio, The Battle Belongs to the Lord. I tried to sing it once and did a terrible job and there's a couple other tracks that are really popular but that one there is not a really popular one it's not one that they released to the radio but it got me to thinking God's got a bunch of names I've always been curious about the names of God the names of Jesus you can look on different websites and you'll find that well maybe there's 12 names of Jesus or maybe like the Jewish people they say that there's one there's one set of of teachings in in Exodus that say there's 72 names of God there's I love this one Normally these are weird websites, but this was, this was quite fascinating, at least this list. ChristianAnswers.net had 950 names of God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. 950, and I had the scripture reference for each one. I'm like, huh, <laughs> I read through those. I'm like, this is really cool, because I'm a nerd. That's what I do. It doesn't matter if it's 12 or 72 or 950 or 1,000 names. The thing is, is that God's name is un- it's unsearchable. It's unfathomable. There's so much There's so much. We could live our whole lives and look at God's names. We owe it to ourselves. We owe it to ourselves to become infatuated with God. Who He is and what He's done and to make much of Him. Like we owe it to ourselves. We owe it to our families. We owe it to our friends to become infatuated. Just like as Elizabeth Browning was with her husband, we owe it to ourselves to become infatuated with the God of heaven. So the question is, how do, I want to ask you a question that I want you to really wrestle with. How do you talk about God? How do you talk about God to people? In what way do you mention what Jesus is doing in your life? Like to your kids, or to your friends, to your neighbors, to your co-workers. In what way do you mention what God is doing in your life? Let me ask you this. It's a follow-up. When you talk about God to somebody, or when you talk about what Jesus is doing in your life, is it dry? Is it boring? Is it matter of factly? For some of us, maybe it's in passing. For others of us, it's like Ben Stein and it's unemotional. You're just monotone about it. If you even share about God. So I want you to think about that. What was the last time you spoke about God to somebody? And how was it? Like, how did you mention about God? So this next set of teachings for the next several weeks, it's called A Thousand Names. It's designed to help us to search this inexhaustible God and to become more infatuated with him and so we can make much of Jesus. And so if that's you and that's me, like I hope for the rest of our lives, we become infatuated with who God is, who Jesus is. So much so that as we're searching him and finding more about him, that it'll naturally bubble up out of our souls. I mean, think about the things that you like to talk about. And you're probably not dry, emotionless, or boring when you talk about those things. And yet, here it is, the God of heaven wants us to become infatuated with Him. So, we'll be in Psalm 145 today. We're going to cover one, one or two verses. Psalm 145, it's called the Ashrei. A-S-H-R-E-I. The Jewish people call it the Ashrei. And I looked it up, and I'm like, what does that mean? Ashrei essentially means happy happy. They call Psalm 145 happy. They actually recite Psalm 145. Imagine this. The Jewish people still to this day, the Orthodox Jewish people that follow what God had told them a couple thousand years ago, they, to this day, recite it three times a day. They recite it twice in the morning. Once in the morning prayer and once like in the morning meeting. Then they recite this prayer at the end of the day. And it really starts with, if you open up your Bibles to Psalm 145, it really starts with the verse right preceding it. Now, some of the Psalms are collected. All of the Psalms really are collected. Some of them are disjointed, but some of them are together. So Psalm 145 and Psalm 144 are actually placed together in the Jewish book. In, their, in, their, in the Jewish collection of Psalms, they're placed together. So Psalm 144, verse 15 starts... Right before Psalm 145. Happy are the people. And there's that word, ashray. Happy are the people with such blessings. Happy, again, are the people whose God is the Lord. Happy, the word there, ashray, or the word there for happy is content. Or perpetual contentment. Like a continual contentment. It's a gradual state of contentment that we are always content. So he's saying happy or content are the people with such blessings. Why are they continually happy? Why are they continually content? Some of you are like, man, I wish I could be continually happy or continually content. Why? These people are happy because their God is the Lord. Jesus actually used a form of this word in the Greek when he shares a sermon on the Mount. Do you remember in the be- there's a thing called the Beatitudes? In, in, in our older translations of Scripture, we have blessed is the one who, or blessed is the one who, but really the, the translation there is happy is the one happy are the meek, for the, they shall inherit the earth, right? Or happy is happy are those who are peacemakers. And so like we look at these scriptures, and so Jesus is hearkening back to the Jewish understanding of a perpetual contentment. Bit of trivia. Speaking of which I got that new trivia book I'm excited about. Couple. I'm going to give you a few bits of trivia today. Number one. Uh, the whole book of Psalms are called the Tehillim. Or the Tehillim. Which means praises. Where do we get that from? It's from, the, it's from the... If you look in your copy of Scripture, it's actually from the title of Psalm 145. Psalm 145. Now, in my copy, it says a hymn of David. The word there for hymn is praise, a praise of David. I could not, when I read this, I'm like, that's how they named it. The Jewish people, they're as creative as I am. And so, for example, the book of Genesis is called the book of Genesis because in Genesis chapter one, it says in the beginning. So their first few words are like, in the beginning. Okay, this will be called Genesis, which means in the beginning. Or Exodus like, it talks about, like, if you look at the book of Exodus, this is the... And so, like, that's how they name these things. And so, for the book of Psalms, they're like, how do we, how do we name a book of collected poetry for God? And they actually take it from Psalm 145. Which is strange, because you would think they'd take it from Psalm 1, or they'd take it from the end, Psalm 150, or maybe even take it from the last word of Psalm 150. You would think they'd take it from any of those spots, but instead they take it from Psalm 145 a hymn or a praise of David, the Tehillim. Also, by the way, Psalm 145 is the only psalm in all 150 where the psalmist doesn't ask anything of God. That's a good bit of trivia. You probably won't get it on like a secular trivia night, but hey, that's something good to know. Because a lot of times when I'm reading the psalms, I see something like, David will say, Search me and know me. He's asking God to search him and know him. Or he'll talk about uh, asking, I'll give the nations to you, O Lord. It's the desire of my heart. Like, but he's saying good things of God, but he's also asking, inquiring of the Lord. But in Psalm 145, it's the only Psalm in the entire collected 150 of them that doesn't ask God of anything. There's 21 verses in Psalm 145. Uh, The ashray includes three more verses. Uh, So it's 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 a prayer book. It's a psalm book. And so they use it, like I said, daily. They use it three times daily. So they attach three more verses to it. One of those is Psalm 144, verse 15. I want to tell you this, that part of dwelling on God, part of making much of Him, is setting our minds on Him and less on us. For the Jewish people that originally heard this, for the Jewish people that recite this even to this day, when they do this, they're setting, because they're not asking anything of God, they're setting their minds more on God and less on them. And we could all, we could all benefit from that. What would happen if we started to think of God more and of, of us less? Uh, speaking of poetry, this psalm of David, it was expertly written. This is some nerdy stuff for a moment. He doesn't ask. He doesn't demand anything. It was structurally formatted in a really interesting way. And yet it's still centered on God. Now, when I'm writing things, because I, I write a lot of, like I write papers or whatever. When I write things and I have a structure, there are going to be some things, some liberties that I leave out because I need to hit this structure. Right? If you've ever written a paper before there's, or if you've ever written a guidebook or something for work and you've got to hit these bullet points, there are some things that you'll leave out because it just doesn't fit even happens in my sermons sometimes. Like, oh, that would be really good. And then I leave it out. There's times where I write something in my sermon. I leave it out as I'm preaching it. Because I'm like, you know what? It doesn't fit after all. But David, even structurally speaking. So, y'all remember several weeks ago? Several weeks ago. I did a sermon about our, why we should have a love for Scripture. Psalm 119. We call Psalm 119 the Great Psalm. This was back in the summertime. The Great Psalm. It's the longest psalm in the entire Bible. It's a hundred and... 60, 157, 160 verses. It's called an acrostic because each every eight verses starts with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. In Psalm 145, this word here, for I exalt you, actually starts with what they call the aleph, which is their letter where we get our letter A from. Uh, Verse 2. Let me read verse 2. It says, I will bless you every day. That actually, in the Hebrew, also starts with the Aleph. No, no, no. That one starts with the Beth. That one starts with the Beth. And then you get verse 3, the Lord is great. That starts with the Gimel. And then you get verse 4, one generation will declare. And none of this means anything to you, except this is another one of those acrostic poems. So he has a structure that it goes through every letter of the Hebrew alphabet from Aleph to to Beth, that's where we get alphabet by the way. If you ever wondered, like, where do we get the word alphabet from? It's from Aleph or Alpha, and Beth, and so it's like a whole, anyway, nerd stuff. Goes through every letter, so he had to start it off that way, just like Elizabeth Browning did in her sonnet. Like She she had a very specific structure for it, and it starts off with different letters, and yet there's different stanzas. Every stanza, there's four of them, every stanza is separated, It's separated by 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 a few different words. They speak of God's greatness, verses one through six. So, if you want to study this later, verses one through six talks about God's greatness. Verses seven through ten talks about God's goodness. Eleven through thirteen is God's glory, and the rest of it is God's grace. I almost think that someone Baptist probably wrote this, but it was David, and he's he wasn't Baptist. It uses you can look into your scripture just for a moment. I will exalt you, my God, the King, and bless your name. Verse one, right? I will bless your name. Look at verse 10. Skip down. All you, God, all that you have made will thank you, Lord. The faithful will bless you. So I will bless you, verse 1. The faithful around us here at the gathering will bless you. And then I want you to look at verse 21. My mouth will declare the Lord's praise. every living thing do what? Bless his holy name forever. So he's like moving out from... It's mind-blowing that the king would take enough time to write a structurally very structurally sound poem about the greatness of God, not ask anything about God. And then he starts off with, I will bless you. Then like our people will bless you. And then like the whole nations, all of the nations, every living thing will bless you. David was infatuated with who God was. He searched him. He mined his depths. He meditated. He obsessed over God. He obsessed over God. here's our application we should be too we should be obsessed over who god is his thousand names make it your goal to study god i I like it because the ladies studied this last week and the guys are studying this week with francis chan chapter three of crazy love and he says he warns against feeling obligated to do a quiet time it's like man there's so much obligation or there's so much guilt or so much shame if you don't hit a quiet time if you don't if I don't hit this workout today, like I feel so bad about myself. And God doesn't want an obligated relationship with him. God wants a spontaneous, and, and, and this love like this, I'm studying you, like Elizabeth Browning did of her husband. Or like David, even better, that, like David does of God. God wants us to like, love him and study him and want him. And, and it should be so immensely passionate. So, verse one. He says, I will exalt you. The word there it's the word group for exalt, it's the word group for rum, not the kind of rum that we drink, but the actual word there is a romem, a it, it it means it's a high place, or it's high, it's lifted up, it's exalted, it's praise. It's to lift it's to lift oneself up. If you're talking of yourself, lift oneself up to boast. Literally, the Hebrews, the Jewish people would say that this means, may God be high. Like we are moving on up. You see it in Psalm 30 verse 1. You see it in Psalm 99 verse 5. I exalt you. I lift you up. The problem is that this word comes from that word group I was telling you about. That word group is also where we get the word for pride or arrogance. When we lift ourselves up, we are pushing others down. We lift ourselves up. We push God down in our priorities. Arrogance, you can write this down. Arrogance drowns out God's work in our lives. Exaltation. Exaltation. Elevates God to his proper prominence. So it's the difference between the word... Like it's the same word group. The difference is you can exalt in God. You can lift him up. You can exalt him. you You can reach higher for him. Or you can lift yourself up. And it comes from the same word group. And so it's a really fine line. Like what do I do? Do I lift up God or do I lift up myself? Because you're doing one or the other. Every day... Every moment of your life, you're lifting up God or you're lifting up yourself. And exaltation elevates God to his proper prominence. James chapter 3, James is the half-brother of Jesus and he says, does a spring, this is a really good logical thought here, does a spring pour forth both sweet water and bitter water from the same source? You can't. Think about it. Like, there's absolutely no way, like, I can get a pitcher of tea and I'm like pouring out this tea and it tastes both bitter and sweet unless you have COVID and you've lost your, lost your taste. But otherwise, it's not literally pouring out anything separately. It's the same thing. He's talking about what's in our hearts. Jesus actually talked about this in Matthew 7, verses 17 to 19. He says, A good tree is known by its, what kind of fruit? Good fruit. He says, A bad tree. And he's he's talking to agriculturalists, farmers. He's like a bad tree is known by its, and everyone would say bad fruit. He's like, and, and what's bad is that if a bad tree produces bad fruit, we've got to cut it down. It's worthless. It's got to get thrown into the fire. Every day we either exalt God or we praise ourselves. So let me ask you this question: Who receives your praise? He says, I exalt you. I exalt you. For David, he's like, I exalt you. I lift high you. I'm making you higher in my life, God, because you're worth it all. I exalt you, my God. Now, this is another bit of trivia, my last little bit of trivia for you today. This is the only spot in all of Scripture that you will find this phrase, my God, the king. Now, the word there for king in, in the Hebrew and in Greek Whether you're Old Testament or New Testament, a lot of times they don't, well, actually the New Testament does, usually. But a lot of times in Hebrew, you don't use an article. This is the English nerd of me coming out, and it's beneficial for all of us. You don't have to put a, an, or the in Hebrew. You don't have to. It's understood. We do it in English because we're morons, and you're like, go get the book. Like, if you were telling your kid, go get book, it just sounds weird. And then you would teach them to be weird, and then no one, everyone would make fun of them. Go get book. Thanks, mom. They would, they would, you'd get made fun of. In the Hebrew, it doesn't really matter because the Hebrew people are, the ancient Hebrew people are a little smarter than us because they love God more. And they, they would know, oh, you're saying, my God the King. I, I get it, I understand. Interestingly, David includes this article in the Hebrew. He includes the article for the. My God, the King. Only place in all of Scripture you'll find this phrase, my God, the King. And the word there for God is the word Elohim. Now, the typical word for God, or atypical word for God, is El. It could be God Yahweh God, it could be God Almighty, it could be God uh, of Babylon, it could be God of God Marduk, it could be God whoever. Usually, uh, when you're looking at the names of God, and we'll cover this in the next few weeks, when you look at the names of God, you'll have like El Roy, which means the God who sees, and we're talking about the God who sees, or the God who hears us, or the God who whatever. In this one, it's Elohim, which is a plural word. You know what's strange about Using a word for God that's plural. David here says, I exalt you my singular God the King. That's in English, right? He's using a plural word. A lot of theologians believe whenever the Hebrew people were saying Elohim, the plural version of God, that they're talking about in some sort of way that they didn't understand the Trinity. And they didn't even know who Jesus was back then. They understood that there was a Messiah coming. But they didn't know who... They didn't know about... I mean, they knew about the Spirit because the Spirit hovered over the waters, right? They knew about God, but they didn't really have an understanding of of a Trinity at all. How neat in the Old Testament that they are talking about, even in their language, they're talking about the triune God, and they didn't even know it. My God, the King... And the word there for Elohim actually is, you can look it up in a few different spots. In Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 18, Isaiah 44, Proverbs 35, it's usually used in reference to the rock, not Dwayne Johnson, or shield, not Roman Reigns. Um, Those are wrestling references. The rock or the shield. They find comfort in the Elohim. So he says, I exalt you. I lift high up you. I lift you higher. I push you up higher. I push myself lower. My God, personal, my God, my triune God, my God that I'm looking to of totality, my God, the king, I'm looking to you for comfort. And I love that word for king. He says, I'm looking to you, my God, the king, because as my God, the king, you are not just ruler of me, but when by using that definite article, the king, he's saying you rule over the whole world. You are king of the universe. I exalt you, my God, the king of the whole universe. You are sovereign. You are exclusively over all. Because God is the personal king over all, I will praise him. I will make much of him. I will kneel down. Another version of exalt is I will kneel down before you. Actually, the word for bless is I will kneel down before you. I will acknowledge you forever and ever. You can see in verse 2, and we're not going to get into it today. I will bless you every day. When? Every day. I will praise your name. How long? Forever and ever and ever. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5 says it this way, and we'll close. John's writing. He says, Jesus Christ. That's the name of God right there. Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. Christ is his role, his title. He was Messiah, rescuer, Jesus Christ. Faithful, that's another name. Faithful, witness, that's the type of witness that he was. So he's faithful witness. So there's three names of God right there. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Those are five names right there in in Revelation 1 verse 5. Ruler of the kings of the earth. Now there's a New Testament understanding. You'll find it in 1 Timothy chapter 6. You'll find the phrase, king of kings. You'll find that throughout Scripture. That God is not just the king, the king, but he is the king of kings. That he is over all kings. He is sovereign over all and it will serve us well to make much of Jesus. So as we close, I'm not asking you really to do anything except for to make much of Jesus. That we would be a people that make much of God. And the, how do we do that? How do we, we mine the depths of scripture for the, I mean, there's not literally a thousand names. The word there for a thousand names in that song, Phil Wickham would say, he says that names carry significance and meaning. And you'll find that in the Old Testament, that God changes people's names because it carries more significance and more weight. He changes uh, Abraham, uh, Abram to Abraham or Isaac uh, or Jacob. He changes to Israel. You'll find that God changes names because it has meaning for people. Like to be able to mind the depths of Scripture and to know the names of God. And to make much of them. So that when we're talking to our friends, it's not boring. But It's passionate. We're excited about it. So, I'm going to encourage you, like the psalmist here, like David, to exalt God the King. Your God, the King. Jesus, thank you for today. I thank you for your word. I thank you for your scriptures. I thank you that, God, we don't have to ask anything of you. We just need that relationship with you. God, it's not that you haven't given us anything because you've given us everything. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. We know that in Scripture. We know that you've knit us together. We know that you supply all of our needs. We see all of these things. We, 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 we are not lacking anything from you. Oh, but God, that you want us. You want us to be passionate about you. So Jesus, it's my prayer that we are passionate about you. Oh, and that we're excited to talk about you with our friends, with our family, with our relatives, with our kids. From generation to generation. From us to those that are younger, God. for, And from those that are younger to eventually, God, those that are even younger than them. God, that we are passing along how great you are. Would you stir that in us, Jesus? In your name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it was encouraging for you and that you have a great week. God bless.